Well, are you a, a disciplined person? Are you able to make great sacrifices and exert extreme devotion in order to achieve a lofty goal? Little goals don't require that much devotion. People learn how to put in the minimal effort, clock in, clock out at work just to cash their paycheck. It's easy. It's easy to skate by. But if you want to achieve something great, or if you set your sights on a big goal, it's going to take an incredible amount of effort to achieve, and, and that in turn is going to require discipline. It makes me think of the bodybuilder. Like, like Arnold Schwarzenegger in his early years, before he was a movie star, he was a world-renowned bodybuilder. Like one Mr. Olympia seven times, this top number one in the world. That doesn't just happen. I think Schwarzenegger either popularized the phrase or coined the phrase, no pain, no gain, but it, it's true, right? It takes an extreme level of dedication to get your body into that shape. You know, back then, he worked out five days a week, or I'm sorry, five hours a day, six days a week, putting his body through immense pain and strain. His discipline extended to his diet. He ate five to six meals a day, totaling 4,000 calories. Meal planning was like a military operation. He had to strictly regulate everything he put into his body. Furthermore, Schwarzenegger had to sacrifice kind of the normal routines of life. Couldn't just go out to eat with friends. You couldn't skip a day at the gym. If you want to achieve your goal of being the number one in the world, you have to sacrifice and be completely driven and disciplined. And really, so it goes with achieving almost anything great. It requires just a consuming level of discipline and devotion. And believe it or not, the same is true spiritually. I hear many Christians talk about how they want to grow. They want to grow in godliness, in holiness, in spirituality, in knowing the Bible. How does that actually happen, though? How do you become a spiritual bodybuilder? It's not automatic. Rather great spiritual growth likewise requires a, a high level of discipline and devotion. I mean, God's already supplied us with the Holy Spirit who empowers us by the fuel of God's word, is ignited by prayer. But then God has made us responsible to do our part, which is to discipline ourselves in devotion to him. Spiritual sweat is required to grow. Scripture teaches this. In 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, Paul says, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for this life and also the life to come. It's not wrong to become a bodybuilder and get in shape, but that all that discipline is only of a little profit. You spend all that energy, what are you doing? You're, you're picking things up, you're putting them down to, to shape your body and that's fine. What do you get from that? Maybe some personal satisfaction, health, maybe recognition, None of that will last if only you expended the same amount of energy devoting yourself to spiritual things. Think about how that might profit your life. Think about all the, the heartache you could avoid and the joy you could gain by, by growing in the grace and truth of the Lord. Advancing in 
Godliness will serve you your entire life. Oh, and also it holds promise for the life to come as well. As Christians, especially great spiritual devotion should characterize our lives. But we know the spirit is willing, uh, the flesh is weak. Sometimes that means we're physically weak, just exhausted by the demands of life. And we, we feel at times we just don't have the energy to pursue spiritual goals. Other times we're, we're spiritually weak. We have the sinful flesh that wants to indulge in the lust of the flesh. The flesh does not want to sacrifice in order to pursue holiness. It wants to serve self. And so long as we give in to the flesh, we're not going to grow. Overcoming then requires great spiritual discipline over the outer man and the inner man, over the body and the mind. But if you put in the work, you will reap the rewards. For God has designed our growth in godliness to yield peace and joy. So how willing are you to become devoted to godliness? You say you, you want to grow, but, but do, you will, uh, do you really? And, and if so, are you willing to work for it? I bet you've said before, like, yeah, I, I should probably read the Bible more. Yes, you should. Not just as religious duty, not just even for knowledge's sake. This is how you're renewing your mind and feeding your soul. But what are you going to do about it? What will, what will it actually take for you to change? In addition, a few weeks ago, we studied fellowship as a spiritual discipline. Devotion to the fellowship is another means of grace God has given to us to grow. So what kind of choices will you make to put the things of the Lord first in your life? And then there's another essential spiritual discipline to pursue, and that is prayer. And that's probably the most challenging one because it requires the greatest selflessness. You don't gain anything, materially speaking, by spending your time praying. When it comes to the things of this world, that's just lost time. There's no earthly reward per se, but, but the spiritual discipline of prayer might contribute to your spiritual growth the most. And I'd say it probably is the most pleasing to the Lord because it, it's just a pure, unadulterated expression of faith. It's just when you pray, there's nothing else behind it if it's not just your religious guilt. But you come before him with, with genuine prayer, it's pure faith. And that pleases the Lord. It makes sense, sense then that as the Apostle Paul moves to conclude his letter to the Colossians, which is where we're at, this is what is on his mind for them. He's already exhorted them in Colossians 3.16 to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. We know well the supreme place devotion to God's word should have in our lives if we are to grow. But devotion to prayer must have a supreme place as well. And so as we get now into Colossians chapter 4, we enter the home stretch in this book. Paul is wrapping up the final body of his letter. But before he bids them farewell, he exhorts the church to pray. And not just to pray, but to be devoted to prayer. And surely this is God's will for every church in every age. If only we too might learn to be truly devoted 
to prayer? How might we grow? How might we, we enter God's blessing and be used by God? This is a lesson we need to learn as well. Coming from our text, Colossians 4, verses 2 through 4. And let's read that now. Colossians 4, 2 through 4. He says, devote yourselves to prayer. Keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word. So that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. For which I have also been imprisoned. That I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. If you're a Christian, I I certainly hope you pray. Sometimes I'm sure you do. But I know we all aspire to grow in, in meaningful, powerful prayer. There is a type of just trite, ritualistic, empty prayer we can fall prey to. And you don't want that. The Lord is not impressed with, with lofty, long prayers done out of ritual or obligation. He doesn't care about those prayers. He, he wants your heart. And the heart that's devoted to him will just naturally express itself in a type of meaningful prayer. This little passage gives us a picture of what that looks like. And so let's consider here four marks of meaningful prayer that, that you too might grow. Four marks of meaningful prayer that, that you too might grow. Let's kind of break this down. First, it is devoted. Meaningful prayer. It is devoted. Just the first phrase in verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer. You've got the main command here, devote yourselves, a present, active, imperative. Just This is an ongoing command. This is a habitual practice. The word devote itself is just an intensified form of the word for strength and endurance. It speaks of strongly clinging to someone or something, having steadfast devotion or faithful dedication. And here this devotion is applied to prayer. He's saying clutch on to prayer, cling to prayer, cleave to prayer. Same verb is used in Romans 12, 12, where we are likewise told to devote ourselves to prayer. We have here the generic word for prayer. It's often used in the sense of petition, and that's probably the sense here, because right after Paul is going to make or ask them to make petition on his behalf. But no doubt, whether you're talking about petition or intercession, confession, praise, thanksgiving, God's people should be devoted to, to all kinds of prayer. In fact, this verb for devotion is used with the object of prayer six of the ten times it occurs in the New Testament. In other words, prayer that is meaningful to God, it's going to be expressed through steadfast devotion. And turn quickly to, to Acts chapter 1, and I want to just show you this pattern. What was the first spiritual discipline that characterized the first Christians. It was prayer. And right after Jesus ascended, what do we find his apostles and disciples doing? They're they're praying, but not just praying. It says they were being continually devoted to prayer. Acts 1.14. So in the upper room after he ascended, it says, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. 
They're just praying. Later, Acts 2, Peter preaches, thousands come to believe. So you have all these new Christians. What do they immediately start to do? Acts 2, 42 says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. Notice the same intentional language describing them, this continual devotion, and it's including prayer. Acts chapter 6, the apostles themselves understood what the Lord expected of them above all. Acts 6, the apostles appoint deacons to care for the material needs of the church because they know they knew the Lord wanted them especially to be devoted to what? Acts 6, 4. It says, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, prayer is so significant, a spiritual discipline, that the Lord wants the leaders of his church to be especially devoted to that. And today that's backwards. Like the CEO, he can't waste time praying. He's got to be more productive. He's got to do something. He has to have something to show for his work. He's got to command and labor and toil. He just can't sit alone praying. How useless is that? But if there is a God in heaven and the work you're doing requires God's power, then praying is actually the most logical thing you can do. But it's not just the apostles and church leaders that should be devoted to prayer. Every Christian who wants to honor the Lord and enter God's blessing should be devoted to prayer. See this in the example of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Now, Cornelius wasn't even a Jew. He was a Gentile, Roman, centurion. But he did fear the one true God of heaven. He later came to faith in Christ but look how he's described before that, Acts 10, 1 through 2. It says, Now there was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man, and one who feared God with all his household. And he gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. Back then, this, these Gentiles were known as, as God-fearing Gentiles. They prayed and worshiped to the one true God. And Cornelius himself was a man already devoted to the one true God in prayer. This is devotion to prayer. This should be basic Christianity. Whether you're a new believer or a top leader in the church, like prayer, devotion to prayer should mark you. And we see all these examples of regular devotion to prayer among the first Christians in the book of Acts. It's almost like the author, Luke, was, was highlighting this on purpose. And indeed he was. Prayer is known to be a major theme among Luke's writings. Luke was not apostle, as far as we know at least. But he was a ministry partner of the apostle Paul. In fact, down in Colossians 4.14, we see Luke mentioned. But the same Luke, he's the author of the gospel that goes by his name, the gospel of Luke. But much more than Matthew, Mark, or John. Luke highlights Christ's own devotion to prayer. In Luke especially, we see Jesus praying. He's praying all the time. Jesus himself was devoted to prayer. And this fact is very encouraging. 
know, whatever questions you might have about prayer itself, whatever you don't understand about prayer, at least you can know this, that Jesus, God the Son, he understood prayer. He had all the answers about like the meaning of prayer, the purpose of prayer, the value of prayer, the power of prayer. He had prayer figured out. He still, though, chose to pray all the time. And clearly, he did not believe it was a meaningless exercise. Even being God the Son, he still found it a purposeful time. And it wasn't just a means of getting things from God. It was a means of fellowshipping with God. He saw prayer primarily as as worship. So look, even if you don't have everything about prayer figured out, we can strive for that. But in a sense, you can say, if it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. The Lord himself directs us to, like him, walk in prayer. And from Acts, you can go to Luke chapter 11 if you want to follow along. Luke 11. Now, let's look at what the Lord himself said about such devotion to prayer. Now, Luke 11 begins with the disciples asking him to teach them to pray. Then Jesus teaches them the Lord's prayer. After that, though, he teaches them a parable about persistent prayer. It's only recorded in Luke's gospel, part of his theme. But let's look at this, Luke Luke 11, 5. It's a little parable. Then uh, Jesus said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. In the ancient Near East, hospitality was essentially obligatory. I mean, it was expected. You've got a friend coming from a long journey, shows up at nighttime, like, well, you're just bound to feed him, to serve him. They were going to do that. But this this host is running out of everything. His pantry's empty. He doesn't even have bread. So he goes to a neighboring friend. He knows he's got some stuff. He's like, ask for three loaves. Verse 7 It says, from inside, he answers and says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut. My children and I are in bed. I cannot give up, get up and give you anything. The most ancient Palestinian households featured just one room. There's one room in which the whole family would sleep, likely on the same mat. The door would have been bolted shut, opened, which is the greatest of inconvenience. It's not impossible but this homeowner is basically expressing like that the huge inconvenience it would be if he had to get up and give, give his visitor bread. And it's going to wake up the whole family. It's going to ruin the rest. And like if you've got kids, you know bedtime routines. Like you don't want to mess with it. So even though this guy is his friend, he says no. Verse 8 though, Jesus says, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, Yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. This homeowner doesn't respond to this guy out of friendship, but he does respond out of his persistence. There was almost an audacity and a relentlessness to this man's request for bread. Basically, he's not going to be turned away until he gets the bread. And so the homeowner just just gives in. But down in verse 9, Jesus connects the dots. He says, so I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, 
and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. And Christ is making here an argument from lesser to greater. God is not like this kind of lazy, selfish homeowner. But the point is this, that even if unwilling and sinful humans honor persistence, how much more will our loving Heavenly Father respond to us and open up to us when we persistently seek Him? God is happy to give to His children, like Luke 11 goes on. If only they would be devoted to Him. He, he, he beckons us to persistently knock and seek Him in prayer. And you know, this point of being devoted to prayer, it got me thinking. You know, in our day and age, a lot of Christians seem to be more and more fearful of the government. You know, what if the government takes away our Bibles? What if they outlaw worship? What if they ban us from praying like happened to Daniel? You could not pray to your God. And what then? But listen, uh, the government is not that big of a threat to our worship. Do you want to know what's a far bigger threat? You know, try living in a culture that's so obsessed with ease, comfort, and personal happiness that people are just far too distracted and preoccupied with self to seek God, study their Bibles, and pray. And isn't that what's already happened to many Christians? Like, look, right now, the government has not taken away your Bibles. You are free to read and study the Bible as much as you want. But, but do you? Like, what's stopping you from doing that right now? It's not the government. And also, you know, the government has not decreed you cannot pray to your God. You are right now free to pray as much as you want. But, but do you? Do you pray at all? What, what's stopping you? Sadly, I fear that if the government did outlaw reading the Bible and praying for Christians, life would not look that different for a lot of so-called Christians. But instead, let us learn the lesson just of what it means to, to wrestle with God in prayer. Like Jacob, who refused to let go of the angel of the Lord until he blessed him. Just let your faith in God be seen in your persistent prayer. Now, we know prayer is not a strict cause and effect formula. Like, if I pray for five hours a day, I'll get whatever I want. That's not the point. But at the same time, we we do know if you don't ask, you, you won't receive. We pray ultimately as worship, as an expression of our, our trust and dependence on God as our creator and sustainer. He himself beckons us to come before him with our request. He's good. He cares for us. And at, per his will, he will answer and give us what we need. But for our part, for now, let us learn just, just to go to him. To devote yourselves to prayer. First, it's devoted. Meaningful prayer, it's going to be devoted. Secondly, it's alert. A second mark of meaningful prayer, it is alert. Flip back to Colossians 4, if you're, if you're not there, back to Colossians 4. And just continuing on this phrase in verse 2. It says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it. In his command to devote yourselves, 
It's now modified by a participle, keeping alert. He's saying that meaningful, devoted prayer, it's going to be alert. Alert here can literally mean just being awake. Like, just, just stay awake while praying. And I think we all know, okay, that, that's important. I think we should do that. We know that struggle. You all have, I'm sure, experienced where you, it's late at night, you're in bed, you're like, I should pray. And you start to pray, and just like one or two minutes later, you're gone. And how easily we, we falter, like, like the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, who could not even keep watching and praying with one hour, or for one hour with Jesus before they fell asleep. But, you know, I think Paul has in mind here more of a, a figurative sense, sense of watchfulness. He's talking about a, a constant mental state, spiritual alertness. It's more than just staying awake while you pray, although that's, that's obviously required. This is keeping alert. It's talking about being tuned in to spiritual opportunities and dangers for which you must pray. The problem today is that we, we don't want to think. We've grown tired of thinking. Our minds are, are so active throughout the day that we don't want to keep them on alert after hours. We're tired, we're distracted, we're deceived. So we just, we just want to turn our minds off just to veg, to disengage, just like power down. And some people, in addition, they're influenced by Eastern mysticism. They think it's virtuous to empty the mind. The scripture teaches the opposite. We are to constantly fill the mind with truth, renew the mind, and always remain alert. Yes, this can be exhausting. But this is why we're given the word and prayer for the, the spiritual energy. When it comes to prayer, though, you need to aspire to a steady awareness of, of how you can be praying. And a huge dimension of this is spiritual warfare and just resisting temptation. That's what Jesus was getting at in Gethsemane. I mean, he told his disciples, keep watching and praying. Why? He says that you may not enter into temptation. He's not just trying to keep them physically awake to keep them company. No, he wanted them spiritually awake to, to be on guard for the schemes of the devil. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking some to devour. We're called to resist him firm in our faith. And the primary way we do that is prayer. Or you can think of Ephesians 6. We're told to put on the full armor of God that we might stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And right after he talks about that, it's no surprise, Paul says this, Ephesians six eighteen. He says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. You know, that's a parallel passage to Colossians 4. And it's the same. He's calling for prayer that's always on the alert for spiritual danger. And then, and then it prays. Prays for yourself or others accordingly. Seeking God's power to overcome. You know, imagine a security guard at a bank during a night shift. And for years, nothing has happened. There's never even been an attempted robbery. It's just every night, it's the same. Nothing happens. 
And so over time, he just grows, grows lazy and complicit. And he just, he stops going on the full route. He stops checking every door. He just, just is not, he's no longer alert. And that is when disaster strikes. Instead, though, it's his job to always be alert, to always have the same level of watchfulness, even if nothing happens, just to always be ready to respond. And that has to be our attitude spiritually. You're called to always be looking out for either spiritual dangers or opportunities for which you can then pray for yourself or others. And let's say you've got a friend who's He's going on a business trip. He'll be staying in a hotel room alone. But you know him. You know he's struggled with looking at lustful images. And so since, since you're spiritually alert, you, you know enough to put two and two together. And you know, hey, this is not just going to be a, a business trip. This is going to be spiritual warfare. And I better pray for him to resist temptation. Or maybe you know a young dad at the church. He's going to take his turn at teaching the kids for the first time. He's excited, but he's really nervous. And, you know, most people, when they hear that, they'd say, oh, oh, that's nice. You're going to teach the kids? Oh, yeah, good for you. That's a nice thing. But when you hear this, you know, since you're devoted to prayer and you're alert in it, you think, yeah, that is nice, but, but what an opportunity. You know, I had better pray for him that he's prepared, he speaks clearly, and that God works to, to teach and move those kids. You know, sadly, I think, I think that person and that response is rare, but it doesn't have to be. Devote yourself to prayer. Keep your mind always spiritually engaged in it. And just always on the lookout for how to meaningfully pray. Third now, it is thankful. Let's continue in our text, a third mark of meaningful prayer. It's thankful. You know, back to verse 2. It says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. The end of verse 2, it literally just says, keeping alert in it, in thanksgiving. If we're going to have meaningful prayer to God, it's going to come in an atmosphere of thanksgiving. This really is so important. We all know how easy it is to default to purely self-centered prayers, where we're just, we're only thinking about ourselves. typically asking God for something. You know, at times, I think we think of prayer less as worship and more as pulling up to the ATM. We think of prayer less as fellowship with God and more like calling mom and dad because you need something. If the only time you ever talk to God is because you need something, you're, you're, you've got something wrong about prayer. That doesn't mean we should never go to God with our needs and concerns. Of course, he, he tells us to do that. But look, we don't go to God with a list of demands. We go, Philippians 4, 7, we let our requests be made known to God. And we submit our will to his will. We pray, but your will be done. And listen, though, that, that's not a sad or depressing thing. Understand what what sustains our joy as Christians is not just getting all the things we want. Rather, what sustains our joy as Christians is the fact that we've already received the greatest gift. We've already received the most important thing, Christ, and with him, eternal life. 
And that's why for those who've entered Christ's life by faith, just an attitude of thanksgiving should permeate your whole life and all your prayers. You always have a reason to be thankful and therefore, by the way, joyful. There are some people who are, so to speak, cursed in the sense that they just, they always focus on what they don't have, what they're missing, what they're lacking. And that leads them to such a crippling discontentment, a bitterness with life, a complaining spirit. It's sad. But as a Christian, yeah, you're still going to take your requests to God, take all of your requests to God, but you're meant to focus more on what you have. Well, you've already been given how the Lord has already proved himself faithful with you. And that's going to lead you to, to thanksgiving and joy. Even if you're still lacking, you still have reason to give thanks and you have reason to rejoice. You see all these ideas married over in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. I'll just read that. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Thanksgiving should be part of your prayer at all times. That's what's going to enable you to rejoice always. These are all meant to go together. And if you recall, this has been a significant theme in Colossians. Paul especially wanted the Colossian church to remember all they have in Christ and always give thanks. Let's review in backwards order, just real quick. You're in Colossians 4, look at chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. He says there, instructing the church, verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were indeed called in one body, and be thankful. Verse 17, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verse 17, whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him. To God the Father. Verse after verse after verse, he just kind of tucks in there thanksgiving. It should just permeate all we do since we're the redeemed body of Christ. Go back to chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. If you recall, this is like a, you might even say a theme verse or a thesis verse to Colossians. Colossians 2, 6 through 7, he says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, So walk in him. That's what the whole letter is about. He says, verse 7, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. You know, this key verse, we're told to walk the walk under Jesus. But that's going to always lead to and include where you're just overflowing with gratitude. The gift of life we've received, it's like a a wellspring that never runs out. We have an unending source of joy and therefore thanksgiving. That should radically transform the daily attitude of the Christian where you're not always depressed and discontent because of all you lack. And this is not to discount your suffering and lack in life, but just to say that the the joy is, is greater 
We're filled in Christ. Along these lines, go back to Colossians 1, back in verses 11 and 12. Paul himself prays for the Colossians. What's he praying for? Verse 12, that they would be joyously giving thanks to the Father, who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And then he reminds us, verse 12 or 13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And as believers, we have been eternally redeemed in Christ. Our sins have been paid for, been completely forgiven. We've been reconciled, justified, adopted, given the spirit. The list goes on. All that goes to say, we've got a long list of reasons to be thankful. Yes, you may have lost your job. Yes, you may be enduring poverty. Yes, you may suffer poor health. Yes, you may have broken relationships. These are all sad consequences of living in a fallen world. And those concerns, they matter to God. They matter to us. However, remember, God has already taken care of your greatest need, your eternal life. And that gives you an eternal reason for giving thanks, which despite all the suffering of this world, that that will constantly feed your joy. This is the benefit of of praying always in thanksgiving. And for some people, there's a switch that needs to flip in their mind where, where you stop always focusing on the negative, on what you don't have, but instead, you, you take those requests before God, but you focus on, on the Lord and on what you've been given. I can't do that for you, but that happens as you renew your mind with the word. You're constantly filling your mind with the truth. You're being reminded of all the reasons you have to be thankful. And then look, try praying too. Pray, ask that God would give you a more thankful heart. And do you think he would honor that request? Well, lastly here, number four, it is intercessory. A fourth mark of meaningful prayer. It is intercessory. Speaking of intercessory prayer, it is intercessory. You know, Paul started this letter with his own thanksgiving in prayer on behalf of the Colossians. And all the way back at Colossians 1.3, he says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And Paul himself first modeled meaningful prayer. That's prayer that's not only concerned about one's own well-being and interests, but the well-being and interests of others. And that even leads to thanksgiving for them. But now in chapter 4, near the conclusion, he turns the tables He calls on them to do the same thing. Look at verse 3. Chapter 4, he says, Praying, you know, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word. This phrase in verse 3 further modifies the command. In verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer. But but really, this, this carries the force of its own command here. He's essentially calling on them to to pray for him when they pray. He says, pray for us. Who's the us? We'll go back to chapter 1, verse 1. It's Paul. It's Timothy. 
likely Epaphras and, and the other ministers and servants of the gospel around them. Just pray for us. But as the church is devoted to prayer, he, he wants them to remember all of these gospel workers. The term for this is intercession. In case you didn't know what that means, it's speaking of praying on behalf of someone else. Again, our prayers can often be self-centered. We're only thinking about ourselves, our needs, our interests. And often, look, that's, that's fair, that's valid. But as we follow the Lord, he calls us to deny self, to follow him. That's going to lead us, at the very least, to also be just as much concerned with, with the needs and the interests of those around us. We're called to love our neighbor as our self. And this is one way we do that. It should be natural that Christians intercede for others because we think about others. Praying for the needs or interests of others is completely selfless. I mean, look, you're praying. You're not even praying for yourself. You're praying for that person's prayer request. And if that prayer is answered, you gain nothing. Again, like materially speaking, earthly speaking, like you don't, you don't get anything out of that. But, but it's more blessed to give than to receive. And the Lord simply leads us in the path of, of loving others, serving others. This is one way we do that. All meaningful prayer should include intercession. Again, that parallel, Ephesians 6.18, he says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. You know, petition, that's just just speaking of making requests of God. But he says, make petition on behalf of all the saints. Not just asking away for yourself, but you're, you're adding to that all the saints. I mean, how often do you even think of others when you pray? Do the needs of others even just pop into your mind? Or are you kind of absent-minded? It just doesn't even enter your, your thoughts to actually pray for others. That's an area to grow in where you're, you're mindful of the needs of others. That's part of that alertness where your antennas are up. You're thinking of the, the dangers or the opportunities others face. You're praying for them as well. And, and practically, if you want to grow in that, try, for example keeping your own prayer sheet or using the church's prayer sheet. A simple tool to keep the needs, the interests of others in your mind that you might pray for them. Because you want to pray for them, right? Now here in our text though, Paul solicits specific intercession for him and his ministry partners. And just to cover these verses, you briefly look at verse 3. His specific desire here is that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. And then he adds that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Again, that's very parallel to what he says in Ephesians 6. He says, Ephesians six nineteen, Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it, and may speak boldly as I ought to speak. When it comes to himself, Paul doesn't seem very concerned to just get out of jail. He knows God can use imprisonment 
as an open door for the gospel. You might find an open door behind bars. God might just have a group of humble, repentant prisoners ready for salvation. They just need a prisoner, or rather a preacher, I should say. But if that's where the open door is, so be it. And that's what Paul experienced in Rome. He did not expect to bring the gospel to Rome in chains. He thought he'd go there just freely. But God so ordained it and worked it with his sovereignty that that Paul actually had more access to preach the gospel unhindered in his house arrest than he probably would have had otherwise. That's how the book of Acts ends. Acts 28.30 says, Paul stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, with all openness unhindered. If Paul just showed up in Rome, he probably would have been beaten up again and persecuted and ran out of town. But here he's in house arrest. He's kind of protected. And people just keep coming to him. He was able to preach for two years unhindered behind bars, so to speak. But again, though, what matters most for gospel ministers is not so much the circumstances, but just an open door for the word. That's a simple metaphor, speaking of a receptive opportunity. It does not mean the absence of opposition, but instead that the presence of those ready to receive words of life. And Paul simply wanted prayer to speak forth the mystery of Christ, i.e. the gospel, boldly, clearly, when the opportunity presented itself. And that most definitely is something the church should always be praying for. And we considered this passage ourselves just a few weeks ago in a, a topical message on how to pray for your pastors. And that, that's an important specific application we can take from these verses. But for now, in general, we're just considering growing and, and powerful, meaningful prayer overall. And whether that's, that's for pastors and missionaries or, or a brand new believer, a new visitor, your friend, intercession is a part of that. And I would simply challenge you to grow in your concern for those around you. Be like Epaphras. We'll see this later, but just as preview, look at Colossians 4.12. Colossians 4.12, he says in his farewells, Epaphras, who's one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. See that? And do you share this deep concern for those in your church? He was a member. He's a number of them. Epaphras is from the Colossian church. And so naturally he's had a deep concern. Concern. There are his brothers and sisters. Do you have deep concern for your local body? And then, does that lead you to labor earnestly for them in your prayers? Could it ever be said that you have labored earnestly in your prayers? Or maybe not. Maybe if you're honest, it could probably never describe you that you've labored earnestly in your prayers for others. But you know what? That can change today. Let let the word convict you and change you. Even this morning. Every Christian I've ever met, myself included, 
We all say the same thing. Yeah, I, I should probably pray more. I should probably be more devoted to prayer. I need to grow in prayer. Okay, we, we all do. But when will that be? What, what will it take for that to happen? It can happen today. But it takes dedication. It takes discipline. It takes devotion. And devote yourselves to prayer. This is the command. Devote yourselves to prayer. Pray on alert. Pray with thanksgiving. Pray for others. But just, just devote yourselves to prayer. Like Jacob. Just refusing to let go until the Lord blesses you. Just, just showing your faith in that relationship. But like Jacob, when you wrestle with God, it might cost you. He walked with a limp for the rest of his life after that time with the Lord. And God is faithful to grow his children. You want to pray more and you're earnest about that. He'll grow you. It might cost you. He has means of growing us sometimes through suffering, sometimes through pain. But the blessing is always greater. And the joy is always greater. So let us learn to just persist in, in our devotion to God in prayer. And let's pray together now. Father in heaven, we praise you for giving us the, the privilege of prayer. Something you didn't have to. You don't have to listen to us. You don't have to open your ears to us. But in your grace, you've chosen to do so. Thank you for your son, Christ, the Savior, who died on the cross, rose from the, get, the dead for the forgiveness of our sins, to redeem us, to draw us to you, enter us into your kingdom. And for those you've called and chosen, you, you open your ears. You, you call us as your children to come to you. You're, you're our Abba Father. You, you care for us. You want to hear from us. You want to meet our needs. It glorifies you when we express the fact that you're our creator, sustainer. We just exist and a humble dependence on you. You're happy to have us take our request before you. At the same time, though, Lord, this, this time of prayer, this is how we worship you, how we show our faith, how we fellowship with our God in heaven, how we seek the interests of others as well. All these lessons on prayer, Lord, I pray they convict us and they shape us. They might prick us and, and hurt as we've fallen short, but let that be renewed into to change, to discipline, to devotion. And convict us, Lord, to be a praying people. How might we change? How might our community change? How might the world change? As we get more and more serious and devoted to prayer. Let that even start today. Renew us in this uh, commitment. And we lift up these prayers to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.